0: Welcome back. We've got an impressive Q&A session next. Stay tuned.
1: Yep, thank you, Steve. So while the attendees, you guys are uh, handling the poll questions, we will kick off the Q&A by raising a very popular question found on the Q&A chat box. It's actually about the volunteer work that our audience can actually do in Singapore in non-profit organizations as well as in social enterprise as well as maybe how they can even start a new NGO or even a social enterprise. So Deborah, given that you are very enthusiastic in um, yeah, you, you have your own social enterprise, do you have any advice for them? For volunteers who want to volunteer or even start a new social enterprise?
2: Yeah, so I think first of all I need to Draw some distinctions that volunteering and setting up a social enterprise are like complete different uh, You know scenarios. Um, uh, but but yeah, I I I Am a deep believer about you know the the whole notion of Uh, you you do what you can with with whatever that you have Right. So so for some, uh, I, I would go back to privilege again. Uh, I can run a social enterprise also because I come from a pretty affluent family background right if i was born in a low income family or some other circumstances or one of my parents lose their jobs uh, i think that um, this this would not be a possible option right so so as much as i would like to say you know everyone can start a social enterprise and everyone can be a social entrepreneur um it's not just about the financial means and resources to do so whether is it personally or you know in the family uh, that, that 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 you are with but uh, there's a whole bunch of other stresses and things that you need to consider, right so so I mean, um many people, I, I think what what i what I see in the social enterprise sector is um you know everyone is passionate. every single founder is passionate, right they, they really would do anything and would go all out for a cause, but not everyone is a business person. and there is a difference, right because, uh, if you are fundamentally an advocate in a social enterprise, then uh, a social enterprise should be, is still first and foremost, a business and it should make money. Uh, because it is going to pay for your rice bowl as well. So if you're purely an advocate and you don't know how to do business and you don't want to be a business person, then that is really going to be extremely difficult. And that's why um, many social enterprises also fail within the first like one to two years because their business model is simply unsustainable, right? They're functioning exactly like a charity. So that's one thing to take note of. Um, The second one, if you're thinking about starting a social enterprise, then uh, I think you also have to be very clear and be ready and willing to give up uh, and make a lot of sacrifices, right? So when I, I, I started my social enterprise really, really young, at, at like uh, 22 hours, you know, still managing uh, my, my uni and I was like doing uni together with us, uh, uh, doing Society Staples. Um, and and my, my friends had very different life trajectories, right? Because while their concerns were talking about like, oh, I can't catch up in lessons, or I'm very worried about my FYP and like what kind of module or lecturers am I going to you know choose and then take? Uh, I was very worried about, am I going to make enough for this month? You know, where is my manpower and talent going to come from? Uh, How can we do sales better? How can we, you know, do our marketing better? So uh, that has definitely caused some sort of divergence uh, between me and my friends. And it got harder and harder to connect because we simply could not relate uh, to each other, you know, on on, on a personal and social front. Uh, So these are the sacrifices we make. Um, uh, I, I work Uh, At least in the first like three years or so, I started to, you know, learn how to balance and have some sort of self-care. But the first three years or so, like 90% of my time was spent on the enterprise, just building up the business. Uh, And, you know, that in itself has sacrificed a lot of family time. Um, And my personal relationships have come at a huge, huge cost as well, uh, just by the fact that I run a social enterprise. So I think these are things that people don't often see and they don't often hear. Uh, many of times people just look at me and then they think like, oh, you know, yet another media coverage or another magazine or another panel discussion, right? And they say like, wow, your life is so great. You're having so much like media attention, publicity. Uh, that's that's like 0.1%, <laughs> right? That's, that's not the hard work that you see. Uh, yeah, so 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 I, I do think that having that sense of clarity of why are you starting a social enterprise and also understanding uh, what kind of need and gap Uh, do you want your social enterprise to address? Because there are many avenues for you to do good and starting a social enterprise is just one of the many, right? It is not always necessarily the best solution. And I think also because right now the over romanticization of, you know, having your own business and a youth, like just being an entrepreneur, uh, it's so glorified that everyone just thinks, as long as I want to create impact, I need to start like some sort of initiative. But if everyone starts an initiative or everyone leads a business, then all these initiatives will also fall because we need people to sustain them. Right? So, so a lot of times actually yeah. you, you can create huge amounts of impact just by joining a team. If you truly like believe in their cause, you believe in their theory of change, you believe in their vision. Uh, so, so explore your options. Uh, don't immediately just narrow down. But if you're really, very clear, you have a you know, huge amount of certainty, then by all means go for it, right? And, and like mm. do, do your best to like enjoy the process, right? Because you need it.
1: Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Deborah. So I guess uh, from her sharing, we know more about the difference between volunteering in one and setting up a whole different story. So on the part of volunteering, Bernice, do you have anything to add about how our audience can actually uh, volunteer with any of your organizations or even with other organizations?
3: Um, I believe that there's a NVPC sort of database where you can You can look for different opportunities. Readable does do call-outs for volunteers, but at the current moment, we already have a waiting list. So, um, it's not really something that we look for unless someone has um, early childhood experience, teaching experience, curriculum development experience at this point. So, it's more like, um, for us, what we're really keen on is, I think that there was a question here about other children in other neighbourhoods. Right, Uh, yeah, anonymous attendee at 7:42 p.m. Um, And for us, one of the things that we we started was an advocacy arm that we call Ready Able. And what we do is we um, talk to people who are interested in starting their own initiatives in their own areas um, and give them some feedback and advice based on our own experiences. Um, And they just take it and run their own thing so that 's one of the one of the things that mm, people can do is think about you know uh, find a model that works, and I think our model has been working because we have a large enough team. I think that having a large enough team really makes a huge difference Um, and not expecting that everyone's going to pull their weight in the same way because everyone has different skill sets, everyone has different time commitments, everyone has different self-care needs. Um, And so then really understanding the dynamic of your team and finding ways where you can support and then finding ways where you can say, hey, I really can't do this, like let somebody else take over. I think that has been very important for sustaining the way that we work Um, And I think that that's why I would say also to the person who was thinking about social enterprise, it's not all about doing it alone. Um, And, you know, having a strong team really helps. Yeah. So volunteering with a group that you care about. I think um, Deborah Deborah mentioned theory of change, um, which is basically the idea of in case people aren't like, don't know this already is this idea of how does your particular focus as a group um, lead to a better society out there so for us it's we work with kids so that they are they are better equipped to um, communicate and they, are, they have a sense of dignity they have a sense of their own agency they recognize that they have a right to a voice and then because of that they not only do better, you know, get a better job, it's not purely about that. It's also about saying like, hey, I, I need this in my life. This These are the things that I need. Um, I'm going to be able to look for help and not just helplessly kind of, you know, wait. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Definitely. Thank you, Bernice and Deborah, for the uh, information regarding volunteering and setting up an enterprise. Actually, Tan En has also replied in the Q&A chat box with his email, too, regarding information if you would like to volunteer. So we will leave it at that. And now let's uh, review the responses to our poll. Yep. So as everyone can see, this is the responses for our poll. And the first two questions uh, for the polls are actually created by Tan Ern. So my question to Tan Ern is, are you surprised by the results? And what do you think we can learn from this?
0: Okay, so the good the good news is most of you know that there are not many organizations helping. And again, as far as I know, there are six organizations helping both registered charities, so if you minus all of the informal groups, there are six registered charities helping both the construction workers and the front domestic helpers. And again, if you look at the, um, the, uh, uh, so the answer is five to ten. For the second question, the right answer is actually two, uh, about 300,000 construction workers. This is as of 2019. So if you just take a very simple ratio, right? there are six registered charities helping 300,000 people. And this doesn't include foreign domestic helpers. The ratio is incredible um, compared to the two thousand two hundred and seventy-seven charities in Singapore that's helping the rest of the population. I'm not discounting that the rest of the population do need help. They certainly do, but just the ratio of um, the ratio of charities to the beneficiaries it shows the, the disjoint uh, between uh, in our in our society. So um, that's the thing about. Question 1 and 2, I just wanted to put it out
1: there um, yep. Thank you so much And there's actually one more question regarding the migrant workers in the Q&A chat box uh, they, the, no, uh, they ask, are the problems faced by domestic workers highly similar to that faced of construction workers? And how do we enact any laws to help them? Maybe Tan Eun you can share more about that too while
0: we are on the topic of migrant workers, yes, okay. Uh, fundamentally, it again is a rights issue because they are not Singaporeans. They don't have the same rights as us, and when you don't have the same rights as us, you don't have the same laws as us. You are not protected um, better by us. That's basically it uh, for the workers and uh, for both both sides of workers. Um, it can be an issue of power imbalance between employer and employee. That's always the problem. We're holding we're holding a uh, pay. Non-itemized pay slips, for example, um, you know some employers keep their passport, even though it's illegal to keep your employee's passport, they keep it anyway. But because there's only so much the law can do, really, you can make it illegal in this case for employers to to not um, to not keep passports of the employee. But because the inherent power imbalance between the employer and employee is such that I can just fire you, like I don't like you. I fire you. You go home, then a construction worker who has spent at least six to eight thousand Sing dollars, who they will borrow money from their relatives from, from the bank to come to Singapore to work. They typically take between two to three years to pay this money back. So employers know this, and again, there's a lot of corruption happening outside of Singapore between the employer, and this is the construction sector, the employer and the the agents who are in the home country. That's the, their kickbacks, basically from the employer to the agent, and to the agent to the employer. So because of all these different issues, the employer knows, within the next three years, you will listen to what I have to tell you to do, because if you don't, I'm going to send you home, and you're going to be faced with debt that you cannot clear, right? So um, that part, unfortunately, nothing Singapore can do, because it's overseas, right? Uh, so, uh, So it's a lot of different issues. So systematically speaking, so what, what can we do as voters, right, as Singaporeans, right? Of course, you, the more we care about them, the more we speak up, the more the government has to do something about it. Uh, one example I can give you is um, day off for domestic helpers for a, long, for a very, very long time. All of the groups advocate, you need to have mandatory day off. You cannot leave it up to the employer to give day off as and when they choose. Because imagine working 24-7 for an employer. And I, again, I, I'm using this word, not lightly, it's a very strong word, but slavery is the word I'm putting out there, okay? It's a very strong word, and I'm not saying that they are slaves, they are not, but if you, if you, again, using the quote from Martin Luther King in terms of social justice, if you look forward 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road, you look back and how we are treated our workers today, it's no different from how the British treated the Chinese, when they were our imperial masters, right? right? Um, not allowing Chinese people to go into restaurants because they were coolies. And our and the workers that come here are no different. They come here for a better life. They send money back home. Um, so uh, yeah, okay, I, I'm rambling a little bit, but um, that's for the worker side. For the helper side, um, the abuse, of course, that's always another issue that, that, um, that they face because of the power imbalance. So the more we care, the more we talk about it, um, uh, the more we confront it. I know it's not easy. Like, I, Okay. I have a, it's a personal example. I have a cousin who has a helper at home And he doesn't let her take a day off. He instead will pay her extra And he told me Ken, well, I'm paying her. What's wrong? Right? Of course as an employee, she's okay la, you pay me more. I, I don't go out. La. But it's technically illegal So I spoke to him. I said look I explained to him nicely. He, he's, he's a close cousin of mine. I said um, you can't do this because they have the right to have a rest day because they are human beings as well. I mean, eventually he listened to me and he actually let her have a day off, which is great. So this kind of small, small things you can do. It's not easy, especially family members, but if you do see injustice, you need to speak up. Okay, that's basically my point. Okay, sorry. I need to we yeah, have 15 minutes so left, for
1: minutes so. <laughs> left. Yeah, thank you so much for the insight, Hanan. So actually we have another question that is very popular on the list and it says, uh, now that we are in phase two, are things getting better? What do you guys think about it? Or uh, maybe Deborah, you could start off first because uh as we as we step into phase two, social distancing measures are also more relaxed. So is that helping the vulnerable group that you are working with?
2: I have to say that I I, I don't think I have enough data uh, to actually say if uh, things are getting better. Um, But based on the information that I do have, um, for the PWD community, those that are of school-going age, uh, yes, indeed, things have gotten better now that schools have reopened, uh, caregivers are getting a little bit more rest and, and respite. Um, and, and, you know, at least the kids are being engaged. But for those that are post-18, because for special needs schools, um, the PWD community graduates at 18 years old, right? So for those that are um, 18 and above, um, the adult services have not been fully operational yet. Yeah, so all these like adult services and centres, they are still limiting the number of people that can go uh, to these places. So actually, um, instead of pre-COVID where they were there Monday to Friday from like 9 to 5, almost a full day, uh, right now they may just be going to the centres on two days and both days are like half days. So majority of the time they are still at home um, and there is very, very little engagement for them. Uh, because once again, most of the engagement right now that we are accessing is all digital and it's all online uh, And people with disabilities do not know how to operate, um, you know, these these platforms And when I say people with disabilities, um, we largely work with those with developmental conditions So you're talking about people like uh, people with autism, people with intellectual disabilities, uh, Down syndrome, so and so forth So things that, um, so conditions that um, have uh, deficiencies and impairments uh, cognitively <clears throat> Yeah, I think the physical um, those with physical disabilities and sensory we don't work very closely with them. But I do feel that uh, in terms of integration um, and just you know managing and adjusting to this entire period, uh, they are definitely faring better than those with developmental disabilities. Uh, for good food for community side, which is uh, low-income families and you know disadvantaged youth and children uh, that we serve uh, by giving them food, um, I would actually say that the problems are still quite persistent. Uh, this is also because uh, initially, Good Food for Community, when we first set up, uh, we only intended to cover the 30-breaker period, right? So it started from like one month, which is like 7 April to like, I think 4th four, 5th four, four, of May or something. And then after that, it got extended to 1st June. So we thought, you know, after 1st June, then, you know, we, we can kind of like, like end the support there. That was the initial intention. Um, by mid-June, we were having a lot of requests from social workers asking if we can actually continue this support all the way to December, so if you just based on that stats, uh, I think that information is a very huge data point just to tell you that uh, I honestly don't think things are getting better, right? Because once again, social workers also do not make this request lightly. It's not like because we are convenient and we're providing for, and hence they say like, okay, Ladi, you know, you just um, give me food for as long as possible. But uh, I think a lot of people are predicting that given all these changing needs, I mean, right now, retrenchment is still ongoing, uh, jobs are still being cut, certain industries are going completely obsolete, right? There are some skills that these people may have uh, that right now may not even be relevant anymore, right? And, and, and with, the, with all these rapid um, um, things that are happening, uh, I do feel that the problems are not only persistent, but new emergent problems will rise. And right now, we still don't know what are those yet, uh, but those are still going to heavily, heavily impact Uh, all these underserved communities. So yeah, the the work definitely does not stop just because uh, Circuit Breaker is ended. In fact, I would say the work barely started. Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. That is a very, very interesting take. And Bernice, I was wondering on the same note for children, if the chat group actually someone us for children to learn well. We actually have to take care of their mental and physical health also. So for example, children like to uh, go outdoors, do their physical activities and stuff like that. So does phase two opening up actually help these children with um, their physical and mental well-being?
3: Um, like Deva said, it's an unknown right now um hopefully they are going out but at the same time i think the pandemic is still a real thing and we have to remember that especially for vulnerable groups the risks are even higher cuz if anything were to happen to them the the fallout is going to be you know because they don't they don't have a buffer the fallout's going to impact their entire family in a way that it's going to be quite a challenge um and that's also something that their parents would be thinking about um so that's something that you know, even if the circuit breaker itself is over, it doesn't necessarily mean that they can change their behavior or they would want to change their behavior. Um, of course, you know, I think it also depends on how things go in the rest of the country. Um, like we're all, in, we're all in the same kind of economic situation in the sense that that you know if one domino falls, we all suffer in some way, shape or form, right? and I think that something that we've been kind of privately discussing in one of the Q and A's is this idea of the universal rights. Um, And for us, I think what we really hope, at least for, for me, what I really hope is that people start to really see that it's not just when you're vulnerable that you're vulnerable. It's that you can become vulnerable at any time. Your privileges don't protect you for life you know, I'm not going to be in this comfortable life forever if I don't work a certain way, if things happen to me, if my insurance plan doesn't work out, you know, there are all these things that can happen to anyone at any given time. And I'm sure that some of us have family members where we've seen things shift for them. And I think that, um, community is one aspect, family is one aspect of support, but also how the systems can be built so that we, we have some form of um, scaffold that allows us to support the people who are at the most vulnerable. Rather than creating more, more hoops to jump through all the time, the fewer hoops that they have to jump through to get to a point where they can have their independence I think the better Um, so that's a really long roundabout way of thinking about children because it really starts from for me anyway from how we start to think about people right and for me thinking about children as equal in 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 terms of their rights equal in terms of having a voice i think that's quite important and so then if we only give them a virtual learning environment it really disrupts the way that they're able to develop and there's really not enough science research out there that understands the impact of digital versus physical learning Um, i do think that it's useful to to have both simply because we're not going to reverse digitalization we're not gonna like stop the existence of video games and all that those things are not necessarily bad or evil I think, but it needs to come with an understanding of nature. It needs to come with an understanding of simple things like gravity. And if I fall down, how do I stand up, right? And 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 I think there has been observations in early childhood that says that you know over the years children's coordination, physical coordination skills have fallen. And as someone who works in the dance field, and I I don't really teach that much. I teach a little bit, but. Um, some of my friends have been teaching for many years, um, children movement, you know, creative movement, dance, and stuff like that, and they can really see the impact that just not moving the body has on their skills in in their bodies. And we don't actually fully understand how psychomotor skills affect neurological development as well. So, I think there's just not enough information, and I don't really have an answer. Yeah, of course, the
1: future is still very uncertain for all of us And speaking of the uh, Q&A, we actually, uh, because of time constraint, we are actually to near the end of this forum So if I could invite all the speakers to make um, maybe one last thought that to wrap up this session Any words you want to say to our audience so that they can take away with them three last sentences from each speaker Yep. Tan Ern, would you like to start first?
0: Uh, three sentences. Well, I'm going to use yep. this carefully. <laughs> uh, uh. I, I mean, if you really want to make a difference, you can. I think that's, that's really it. You find your passion. Find what you want to do. Um, um, I mean, we are hiring. <laughs> Just a note. <laughs> so we always not start hiring, but we are hiring. Case manager. Um, and um, I wanted to talk uh, actually latch on on Deborah's point about it's really not easy. It's really not easy. And I and I run a charity. I only have one bottom line. She has two bottom lines. She has to make money and do good. I only have to do good. So my job is easier. Um, so so think carefully. Um, and it's uh, if you have a if you have a good support network like your family, your friends, then you really can move very far. Like again, I, I'm also, you know, as a Chinese man, right, I talk about privilege. I'm very lucky. My wife very supportive. I have and my family, so I can do this full time. So, um, but don't, I mean, it's, that's basically all I have to say, like, really. Mm, thank you just you so have to much. Yeah, find a way to do it and then you'll be done, so.
1: Yes, definitely. That's the spirit to go. Then uh, Bernice, maybe you have anything to say to the, our audience? Um,
3: I saw that actually a lot of people already do some kind of volunteer work. And I think that that's part of the reason why you're here. Um, so I hope that you press on, um, that you take breaks when you need to. I really encourage that you pace because this is not a sprint, right? Changing changing lives is for the long haul. It's for history. It's not for tomorrow. Um, and I think the main thing is to really just do what you can when you can and, and how you can. Um, so really recognizing your strengths and recognizing your your limitations, you can do a lot. Yeah, that's very, very inspiring. Okay. For
1: Deborah, any last words to say to our audience?
2: Yeah I, I it, it, it's quite similar uh, to what Hanun and Bernice have you know already shared. Uh if if you're truly passionate um I would strongly say just uh, go for it. Uh, but I think one of the biggest lessons that I have learned uh, in in my course of being a social entrepreneur and doing all this community work is um, never assume. Right? I think sometimes a lot of us also, when we enter these spaces, uh, we think we know better. Uh, we we make assessments based on the way we live our lives and you know our experiences have been, and then we say like, oh, since you know we have done this and this is good for us, then this should be good for you as well, right? As like whichever marginalized group, uh, never make such assessments. Uh, Please uh, always go down to the community, understand from their perspective and even if you may not agree with it, uh, hold space for that because if you truly want to serve the needs of the community, uh, you need to get their input. It's not you imposing your perspectives on them and I think that that is really something that uh, as a social sector, we can afford to do a lot more. A lot of the times we make decisions uh, without uh, consulting a lot of these community groups that we serve uh, or like, you know, after decisions are already somewhat made, then we, you know, go back to them and say like, you know, how do you feel about this? And then they give us inputs and then we're like, oh yeah, but already too much work done, you know, halfway through the process. And then like, yeah, that that's okay. you will take it for the next round. Uh, so make sure that every step of the way, uh, your community's inputs are always um, you know, part of the entire process and equation and make sure that you do that feedback loop also. Like after you deliver, ask them for their feedback, ask them how you can iterate. Uh, yeah, that, that, that is so, so, so important. I cannot stress that enough.
0: Yeah, I want to add on a little bit. So design thinking. Yeah. So one of the big push uh, in the social sector is design thinking. I mean, it, we've been talking about it for a long time, but I had a dialogue with um, the NCSS CEO yesterday and uh, she, she herself has that kind of background. And one of her key things really is design thinking to really put at the heart of what we do the beneficiaries and not just assuming what we think they need because Deborah is right our sector has too much of that assumption even i sometimes have oh yeah la, they, they do they all don't have emails we need to give them email address they told me no we have emails we're talking about i, I mean there's a separate program but yes
1: yes <laughs> yeah thank you panelists we definitely learned how to volunteer not to assume as well as a lot of insights and opinions about the important issues face- that Singapore vulnerable groups are facing. So thank you everyone for your active participation and thank you Deborah, Bernice and Tan Eun for sharing such insights. I'm sure like all of us have gained so much from this forum and how we can contribute to the ground initiatives in Singapore.
0: Thank you so, everyone mm-hmm. for the engaging Q&A session. During his most recent ministerial speech, Mr. Taman actually noted that the greatest confidence that Singaporeans have in their future comes from their social compact. He reminded us that it is about the networks and initiatives that we saw spring up in this COVID-19 crisis, about the interest we take in each other, at workplaces and in the community, because we all make up the fabric of Singapore. As young Singaporeans, we must shoulder the responsibility of strengthening our social fabric with ground up initiatives.
1: Thank you to everyone here today who are willing to be the change makers to strengthen our social fabric. Resources regarding volunteer opportunities, transcripts, podcasts, post-event slides, that, slides like that will be disseminated within two weeks of this forum, so do keep a lookout. In order to help everyone improve, please also scan this QR code reflected on the screen and join our WhatsApp community. So once again, a big thank you to all three speakers for taking time off your busy schedules to speak at this session. And thank you to our audience for joining us today. We are also immensely grateful for our supporting organizations. It has been a pleasure hosting and moderating the session. We hope to see you at our future events. Goodbye.
0: Thank you for tuning in to our final episode. Once again, we sincerely thank all of our audience members panelists, friends, and family that have supported us all the way. Take care, stay safe, and all the best in the future.